Good evening, everyone. Tonight's class is titled Emulating the Tzaddik. And I actually I appreciate everyone coming out in this weather. This week, we learn Vayechi Yaakov Beretz Mitzrayim. The Torah portion starts that Yaakov lived in the land of Mitzrayim. And the word live is life. That means a life of happiness, a full life. The grandson of Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi, the author of the Tanya, he approached his, his grandfather, so the author of the Tanya, his grandson, Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Lubavitch, approaches his grandfather and he says, I have a question. How is it that Yaakov's greatest time in his life, he lived in Mitzrayim, the Balaturim, one of the commentators on the Torah says, not only did Yaakov live in Mitzrayim, Vayichi, this week's Torah portion is called Vayichi, and he lived, and the Baal HaTurim says, not only did Yaakov live in Mitzrayim, but the best part of his life was in Egypt. How could it be? When he's in Israel, that should be the ideal. Yet we're saying the best part of Yaakov Inu's life, he lived in Egypt. How could that be? And Rabshneir Zalman responded, he said, prior to Yaakov Inu going to Mitzrayim, he sent his son Yehuda to establish a yeshiva, a cheder, a day school. And when you have Torah, Wherever you live could be the best place. So how could it be that he lived in Egypt? Because over there there was a yeshiva. Yet that doesn't answer the question. He was asked how the best part of Yaakov Inu's life could be in Mitzrayim. And he answered because there was a yeshiva. I'm sure there was also a yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael. So what's the answer? Because... So why still was the best part of Yaakovinu's life in the worst place in the world? We say the most unholy place in the world at the time. Ervas Aretz, the nakedness of the land, the, the lowest place on earth at that time, was Egypt. So Yaakov lived the best years of his life in the lowest of all places? And yes, this goes perfectly with what we're learning in Tanya. Yisroh Ha'or Min Ha'choshech. From darkness comes the greatest light. When you have a yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael, it's not a big deal. But when even in, in Egypt, in the lowest of all places, you could establish a yeshiva, you could have a in, in the lowest of all places, Yaakov Avinu can bring up a generation of Torah scholars, a generation of God-fearing Jews, that is the greatest accomplishment in the world. That is the best life possible. So why then didn't... Reb Shneir Zama talking to his grandson Menachem Mendel, Menachem Mendel, why didn't he tell him clearly these words? That when you're in Egypt in the lowest of all places and over there you have a yeshiva, that's the best thing in the world. Why did he say in vague terms because there was a yeshiva in Egypt, thus the best life was in Egypt. Why didn't he clarify? Because there was a yeshiva in the lowest of all places Therefore, from the darkness comes the greatest light, and the best life is in Egypt. Why didn't, why didn't Rabbi Shneir Zalman, the Alter Rebbe, why didn't he clarify his statement? And this teaches us a lesson in education. When you're talking to someone, when you're talking to a young child, you don't want to tell them right away that in darkness is the greatest blessing. You don't have to jump into darkness. You don't need to put yourself out there. We don't want children to go ahead and get into a challenge that's unnecessary. But when you're stuck in a challenge, when all of us in our own lives, we know that we have challenges, whatever they may be, we need to know. 
that the greatest blessing in the world can come from that challenge. Yaakov Avinu's greatest years of his life was in, in his challenge in Egypt. So in summary, in this week's Torah portion we learn that Yaakov lived his greatest life because of his greatest challenge, because of being in Egypt. Our challenges bring us the greatest blessing. Let's regroup into Tanya, but I thought that's a phenomenal idea that I really wanted to share with you. May I respectfully, I wouldn't say disagree, but add a... <laughs> Absolutely. When he was in uh, Eretz Yisrael, he was constantly in grief because of the disillusion of his family, his loss of his son, uh, the uh, rivalry between the brothers, when he was in Egypt, his family had become reunited. He saw the return of his youngest son and uh, that he achieved a position of power and that he could live in peace uh, without worrying about providing with his family and his family was indeed together. Hey, David is making an obvious point and I do want to clarify this. Thank you for bringing it up. On a technical level, the reason why Yaakov lived the best years of his life in Egypt is because prior to, yes, prior to being in Egypt, his brother Esau wanted to kill him. Are you familiar with the story of Jacob and his brother Esau? Yeah. His brother wanted to kill him. And following that, we have the story of Yosef in, his, in, in Yaakov's perception being killed. So yes, the first time he was able to settle was in Egypt. But that exactly was the question that, that Rabbi Nachman Mendel was asking. How did God create it so that his best years were in Egypt? That, that precisely was the question. Why in Egypt, Egypt of all places did God create that Yaakov should have the happiest years of his life? And to that the answer was because from darkness comes the greatest light. Pervas Egypt. <laughs> Okay, so now let's regroup. We're talking over here. We're in the middle of chapter 14. We are on page 62 and we've stated how every person, if something negative comes to your eyes, you shall look at yourself in the mirror and say, I am not a low person. The lowest of all low wouldn't disconnect themselves completely from God. I am no lower than Him. The lowest of all low, he would never, God forbid, disassociate himself with God, convert, God forbid, to another religion, even if it was at the cost of his life. And I know, again, when someone sees that tempting idea, look, look at yourself in the mirror and say, I know, if I am going to fulfill this temptation, I'm separating myself from Hashem. And we shared how, again, each and every one of us has the ability to be a Bainani. We all have the ability to be in full self-control in our thoughts, speech, and action. That's what we previously learned. But we shared that we do not have the ability to have full control of our, remind me, emotions, of our feelings. Our emotions are not in our control. And this left us with a question, and that's what we're going to continue with today. Why, right before the fetus is born, right before this child is born, the angel comes to him and makes him swear, be a tzaddik, be a... You can't be a tzaddik. I'm not saying you, Liz. Liz is a, a tzaddik. But some of us are just the soul of a Bainani. We don't have the ability, we don't even have the potential to be a tzaddik. 
So why is the angel making a swear, be it tzaddik? And as we mentioned last week, the worst thing you could do to a child is tell him, at a young age, you must become a doctor, even though you know that this child has no potential to become a doctor. The whole life the child's growing up with this perception that the only way he's going to be anything is by being a doctor, and yet he doesn't even stand a chance. You've heard of such a thing, Silas? Where, ch- where, where parents, they bring up their child doctor, with... Lawyer. They bring up their child with a mission. That's impossible. Mission impossible. But yet... Hashem is doing this to us, seemingly. Right before each and every one of us was born, an angel made us swear, I will be a tzaddik, and yet we don't have even that, even that ability. And that's where we are now. We're learning that yes, not all of us could be a tzaddik. And therefore, the angel continues, do not be a rasha. If you can't be a tzaddik, don't be a rasha. Don't be wicked. But, but, why, do we, why are we sworn be a tzaddik? Because, as t- today's title is, we must emulate a tzaddik. Part of our mission on this world is to emulate and try our best to become a tzaddik. We have to try our best to be in control of our emotions. Just because, you know, my wife was just sharing with me that one of the... We have this book called um, Teaching Like a Champion. Have you ever heard of it? Teach, fantastic book called Teaching Like a Champion. It has 101 techniques for teaching. And one of them is, never start off a section of anything and tell your students, look, the state demands I teach it to you. It's, it's way above your head. We're just going to go fast. We've all had those teachers, right? They said, we need to do this. We're just going to do it. But just bear with me. You may not understand it. <laughs> That's the worst thing you could do. You're setting up, you're setting up everyone for failure. Self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> exactly, self-fulfilling prophecy. Thank you. So, what we're doing here when we're being sworn be it tzaddik is because we don't want to set the bar and say, just have self-control over your thought, speech, and action. If I were to tell you you could only be a tzaddik, so then we would all think, you know what? I'll be in check in my thought, speech, and action. But whatever my desires are, whatever my emotions are, I'll, I'll let them run loose. If I see something and it brings me, like, don't worry, I'll just... No. We must try to be a tzaddik. We must try as much as we can to check and be on top of our emotions. But we're telling you that don't get frustrated if you're not able to. So reach for the stars. Right? What, how does the quote go? Just reach for the stars. Keep your feet on the ground and reach for the stars. Precisely. Keep your feet on the ground. You're a Bainani, but nonetheless, reach for the stars. Try your best to become that tzaddik. And now we're going to continue in the Tanya, page 62. Is it not a basic premise of what you've instructed before? That everything is a level. That once you have achieved a level, you must strive to the next level. Therefore, if you continue to strive, theoretically, everyone can be a tzaddik. So it is not a false exhortation. David, you're going to take me out of business. <laughs> we're going we're to get there soon. Oh, right. okay. oh shut up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Page 62, right-hand column, we're up to likewise. It's smack in the middle of the bottom paragraph. Likewise in regard to, do you see it? In the middle of the bottom paragraph on the right-hand column, likewise. Ah. 
Likewise, in regard to all pleasures of this world, the wise man foresees what becomes of them. For in the end they rot and become worms and dung. Everything in this world, the Bainani, before you're about to do something, just think and remember that the biggest delicacy, the biggest steak, the biggest food, we all know what the end is going to be. And the same thing is with any pleasure. It, it, it's a fleeting moment. And when a person thinks about this, then he'll recognize that let's just leave it alone. It's, it's nothing. That's a way to get in check in the negative. Make sure you don't do something. Conversely, let the Bainini, let him delight and rejoice in God by reflection on the greatness of the Ein Sof. Let a person think and reflect on the greatness of the Ein Sof. We've never in this class taken a moment to discuss what Ein Sof is. Anyone familiar with the term Ein Sof? Endless. Ein Sof. What? Literally. Ein Sof. Endless. Well, what's the connotation of Ein Sof? What? Well, How does Hashem? endless mean Hashem? Isn't that a, a, another term for Hashem? Absolutely, you're all correct. Nonetheless, today I'd like to take a few moments and we'll go through them as they come. I, I've, I've missed, in the back of the Red Tanya, we have fantastic resources. Unbelievable. I've never taken the time to look at them. Nonetheless, a there's a glossary. What? It is an amazing glossary. And again, today we're going to look at three of the words. And with you, I'd like to read how they define Ein Sof. Page A124. A124. Ain't so. Ain't so. If you have it, if you have it. Again, it's A124 at the end of your book. It goes backwards at the end of your book. So if you're at an A70, then you would actually continue flipping the opposite direction. What's the... Are, are you, what's what I mean to say is the glossary goes from left to right. <laughs> okay, got it? Right. Okay, Ein Sof. We're in the second to last entry on page A124. Ein Sof, the endless. Infinite. The term frequently used in the Zohar and later Kabbalistic works to indicate the unknowable God. Beyond the Ein Sof is the pure Godhead quite undefinable. So I think what's important to know about the Ain Sof What's a pure God? Uh, it's a word that may not exist. I'm sure it exists. But nonetheless, I'll share with you what they're trying to say. Ain Sof itself is a limitation. To say God is infinite is a limitation. God is not infinite. He's also finite. God is everything. And that is what we're saying, that the term Ain Sof itself is not the essence of God. And when we talk about the essence of God, we'll, we'll see some, we'll see some um, definitions which are not definitions because we can't define the essence of God. But nonetheless, to get back over here, we're saying the definition of Ain Sof is infinite and that itself is a level. It's not the essence of God. Back in the Tanya. So, uh, so the Benini should delight and rejoice in Hashem by reflection on the greatness of the Ain Sof, not even the essence of God. Just think about the greatness of 
The Ein Sof, blessed is he, to the best of his capacity. Think. Did anyone ever hear? I one time was by a Farbrengen, until today, I remember the person who gave this over. It was such a simple point, but no one ever clarified it. We were sitting in the Yeshiva Hall in California, and the Mashpia, the mentor, he says, just imagine that you are right now sitting on Waring Street, the name of the Yeshiva. You're sitting here, and think how there's so many people gathered in this room. And then imagine how there's so... Waring Street in Hollywood? Yes, it's right now. No, that's where my grandmother lived. Okay. Waring Street is right <laughs> there. <laughs> Maybe. Sorry. So, imagine you're sitting here, nonetheless there's so many more people, and each one of these people has divine providence. And then imagine how there's the entire LA with millions of people. And just, just basically, slowly contemplate how there's this tremendous world out there, and on each and every person, there is divine providence, every single person, Hashem has a plan for each and every one. Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov, the Baal Shem Tov says, every blade of grass in this world has a divine plan. It's, unpre- it's unbelievable. Just, just thinking about this makes you, first of all, it just puts you in a different mood. It, like this, Hashem is watching you. Yesterday, one of the things that is, is uh, one of the biggest blessings in life is belief. There are Chovas, Chovos Halavavos, by raise of hand, anyone familiar with that book? Chovos Halavavos, classical work. Just yesterday I was going through a section in it called Shar Habitacho, and I highly encourage you to learn it. It's in Hebrew and English. And over there, the author, he, he shares how if someone has trust in Hashem, everything else falls aside. There's nothing to worry about. Why should you worry if Hashem is guiding you? You know, the, I'm going to digress for one minute, but I want to share this amazing point. The Talmud and Nida shares with us that there are three partners in a child. There is the mother, the father, and Hashem. Now the word partner in Talmudic doctrine means that there's three people actively involved in something. So what does it mean Hashem is a part of the child? If Hashem blew in the, the neshama, that was a one-time thing. The person has a neshama. But what is a constant... What does it mean that there are three partners in this person? It means that the mother and father need to worry about the child's spiritual life. And if they do that, then Hashem is going to worry about the physical. So going back to if we all have trust in Hashem, so everything else falls aside, why should I worry? What are you worrying about? You know, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak of Lubavitch, he said, like, <laughs> worrying, it's a waste of your mind space because there's a plan and, and your worry is not going to change that plan. So getting back here, if you want to be able to connect with Hashem and just do mitzvot, all you need to just focus how there's a world out there and, and Hashem has a master plan for each and every one of you. To the best of your capacity. And that will bring you to a love of Hashem. It will bring you to connect with Hashem. Clear? Any, any questions? Rebbe? Yes, David. Um, with respect, I need to point out that Hashem also says, I am infinite. You cannot understand that, so I accept, ask you to accept 
that I am the third party in your life and I am infinite. And your job is to exercise your free will in fulfilling my will for you. Now that's a paradox, and that is, I think, the essential paradox of Judaism, that by exercising free will, you can, you can theoretically ascend to become a tzaddik, and you must devote your energy to that. And whether or not you actually achieve it, the fact that you are involved in the process is my will for you and what I want you to do. And that is the solution to the paradox. Because we cannot admit the fact that you, Hashem, Ein Sof, whatever term you choose to use, have invested in me the free will to fulfill your will. Okay, thank you, David. I'm not going to really, I don't want to go further into the conversation, but I appreciate that point. So, Hashem, if we're going to recognize how Hashem is watching over each and every one of us, that should remove all stress in our life. Now, let me, let me be clear. I'm stressed out. <laughs> in other words, I wish, I'm stressed, I wish I was at this level, so I'm talking easy, but it's still the truth. I'm allowed to say the truth, even though I, don't pra even though I may not be able to fully practice it myself. Again, the truth is that, it, that Hashem has a plan, and there is no reason for us to worry. There, we do need to think at times. At times we could be going through a struggle, and we need to make a plan. But to truly worry doesn't have value. Does that make sense? So, so. You have a question? Because we worry and, and our stress uh, peaks and valleys or whatever, it, does that mean we're short on bitachon? Essentially, yes. Someone who has true faith in Hashem shouldn't be losing his mind space over things. Again, I'm not saying that, that I'm holding there, but to answer your question, yes. There is a lack of, there is a, a sense, a lack of faith. Someone who worries a lot. That's why Alfred E. Newman is a tzaddik. <laughs> okay, so, so the Bainani is sitting there and he's pondering these two points, how everything is, every desire is a fleeting moment, and how every, and if you, and how thinking about the greatness of Hashem brings you love, and guess what? It just doesn't happen. He's thinking, and he still worries, right? The, the, the worry is still there. And nonetheless, even after he tells himself that this, this f delicious food is not worth the desire, it's going to go, nonetheless, he still can't get over it. He, may, he could control himself. Remember, the Bainani is able to tell himself he doesn't want it. He's able to, but nonetheless, the Bainani, remember, he can't control his emotions. And let's continue. That's what we're going to say in Tanya. But worry could just be an expression of concern, too. Not necessarily Why? lack of faith or something. Why? Because somebody that worries could also be showing their concern towards something. Empathetic. Like, yeah, being empathetic towards something. So, <clears throat> maybe we're worried about what the plan is, because we don't always know. Or we never know, to be yeah. precise. Yeah. Right. Maybe that's what I'm worried about. <laughs> <laughs> But going back to what Melissa said, there, it's a blessing, yes, to worry about someone else. We're talking about worrying about yourself. Oh, okay. And we learn, we learn about this a lot, a lot, actually, that we actually, previously we learned how when Yosef and Benjamin met, they each cried on, they each cried on the shoulder of, of Yosef cried on Benjamin's shoulder, 
And Binyamin cried on Yosef's shoulder. Asks of the commentators, why did each one cry? Each one cried because they were each crying about the destruction of one of the temples. But they were crying about the destruction that would take place to their siblings' temple. So again, Yosef and Minyamin, they were each thinking about a struggle that would happen, but they were crying for their brother's struggle. Yosef wasn't crying when he met Binyamin for the struggles he would have. He was crying for the struggles that Binyamin would have. Binyamin, when he met Yosef, wasn't crying for his own struggles. He was crying because of the struggles Yosef is going to have. So the commentators ask, just cry for your own struggles. So you don't want to do that. You don't cry for yourself. Right, because then you're not showing faith. Exactly. To cry for yourself that's a lack of faith. But the greatest thing you could do for someone else is cry for them. If someone else is going through a rough time, yes. Cry, cry for them. Sure. Show them you care. Just You brought up a good topic. I have to share this one more story. There were two brothers playing. They were playing a game called the Rebbe and his Hasidim. They played a game where one of them would pretend he's the Rebbe and the brother would pretend he's a fellow coming in to ask advice of the... <laughs> These two children were children of the, of the Rebbe at the time. Two children, but they're playing a game, what they see by their father. Okay, so the first brother goes, and he says, he turns to his brother, and he, and he says, Oh, I did such and such a sin. And immediately his, his brother, acting as Rebbe, responds, Oh, you sinned? This is what you need to do for it. <laughs> so the one who pretended he sinned, he looks, to his, he looks at his brother and he says, You will never be a Rebbe. Why? Because a real Rebbe, the first thing he does when someone tells him he sins, is he sighs. He, like, he connects with him. You're not going to be a Rebbe. That was the truth. He didn't become the Rebbe. The one who, who played the chassid part, he became the rabbi. So yes, for someone else, you're, you, you cry. Good point. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Melissa. Okay, so back inside. So, the Benini, he's struggling to achieve this ultimate faith. He's struggling to achieve this feeling where all desires, he's able to recognize that all desires have no, no place. But he can't. And that's where we're holding page 62, four lines from the bottom. He may well realize that he cannot attain to this degree with the full measure of, tr of truth, except in illusion. He's able to come perhaps to a step, but he's not able to, to do that. He's not able to reach this level. Nevertheless, he should do his part. Try your best. In an effort to uphold the oath and minister to him, be righteous. Remember, we said... That put your feet on the ground. You need to be a Bainani. Do not be a sinner. But reach for the stars. That is why you're, each and every one of us were sworn, be a tzaddik. Try your best. And God will do as He sees fit. Hashem will decide what He would like from you. Now that doesn't really make sense. We all know the story of the man who he goes to the rabbi and he says, Rabbi, I'd, how much is it to be a Kohen? <laughs> and the rabbi says, 
impossible, going on and on. Finally, the rabbi turns to me and says, why do you want to be a Kohen? He says, well, my father was, my grandfather was, and my great-grandfather. <laughs> you can't become a Kohen. And seemingly, you can't become a Tzaddik. So what does it mean that God will do as He sees fit? And here we're going to learn two ways that you can become a Tzaddik. Like that story, you, you actually, you can become a Tzaddik. What are the two ways? Firstly, you could train yourself to do something. You are able, a person does have the ability to train himself. If you work long enough on something, so you're, it becomes second nature by you. It's natural. So the first way the Bainini can become, come close to tzaddik is by constantly trying. If you try, you'll be able to come somewhere. You won't become a tzaddik, but you'll come close to tzaddik. That's the first way you could not, so you're not only emulating a tzaddik, you're actually becoming a tzaddik. And now we get to the second point, that you can become a tzaddik. There is a way, although you have the soul of a Bainani, you can become a tzaddik. Let's first see the first way inside, because the second way we're going to go really, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating point. Let's first see the first way. Furthermore, Habit reigns supreme in any sphere and becomes second nature. You all had that experience you were driving to the store and you just ended up driving to your parents' house. So, you know, you, you, <laughs> exactly. So, habit reigns supreme. If we're going to, therefore, if he accustoms himself to despise evil, it will to some extent become despicable in truth. Similarly, when he accustoms himself to gladden his heart in God through reflection on his greatness, for self-impulsion induces heavenly inspiration. We have the ability to constantly try our best and it will become second nature. Not only will it become second nature, but here we learn another Kabbalistic term called Isarusa Dilatate Isarusa Dilaela. It's a, it's really a reference that goes on the relationship of man and woman. We know that Shir Hashirim was written a song of songs. It's a, in, in a sense, it's a, it's a, a book of love. And not only is it a book of love, but if you read it in a very literal level, it's a very graphical book. But that is the relationship between Hashem and the Jewish people. It's like the relationship of a man and woman. And within the relationship of a man and woman, so we, th there's discussion, basically, who's the first connection? Who when there's a relationship between a man and a woman, who took the initial step? Was it the man? Was it the woman? And we learn three steps. We learn that there's three steps. We learn that the man reaches out to the woman. Reaches out, I'm not talking about, like, he reaches out in the sense perhaps he'll try and connect with her. Then the woman reciprocates and reaches out to the man. And finally the man connects to the woman. Three steps. It's called the... So we have the mass... The, the first initial step was taken by the man. 
Second step by the woman. And the third and final step by the man. Most often when we learn about the connect about this isarusa de la tate, isarusa de la ela, we have it's called the arousal from above and the arousal from below. The arousal from below above is a reference to Hashem or the man, and the arousal from below is a reference to the Jewish people or the woman. So the Jewish people are, as a whole are called are called woman, right? And Hashem is our chasa, and Hashem is our husband. And when we do something, it's called feminine waters. So the let's let's look in the glossary and let's see it inside. Okay, let's turn to the back, page A one hundred and twenty-six. As I apologize, A one hundred and twenty-seven. Itaruta dilatata, Do you have it? A one hundred and twenty-seven. The translation of Itarusa de la Tata or Itarusa de la Ela is arousal or stimulation initiative from below and arousal or stimulation initiative from above. Arousal from below refers to an act undertaken by man, a human effort. While arousal from above refers to the, to, to the divine efflux issuing from above. Generally, to elicit this heavenly effusion one needs to arouse it. This is done by an appropriate, benevolent act on earth. So in short, when we have an arousal from below, that creates an arousal from above from Hashem. This benevolent act on earth is also referred to as the elevation of feminine waters. This stimulation cycle can begin with God or with man. So if you remember, I mentioned prior that Hashem is the man, we are the woman, and we're saying the first step can either be Hashem reaching out to us, it could be the man reaches out first, or it could be the woman reaches out first. Man begins by reaching toward God in love, and in return, man is rewarded with an even greater experience of love as the divine love touches his soul. The cause or starting point can come from within or from without, below or above. Okay, to, to kind of regroup, we're sharing that when we make an initial, I like the word here, stimulation or initiative, when we make the first initiative, Hashem reciprocates back. But what's important to know is that Hashem reciprocates back much greater than what we ever gave. Have you heard the expression, Peace Chuli Hashem says, make a hole for me. Open in your heart a hole the size of a needle, and I'll take that hole and widen it to be as big as the 100 amatal, 150 foot tall door entrance to the holy in the temple. Again, peace holy kechudosh machat. If you make a, a hole in, the, in your heart, the size of a needle, to allow me, God, to enter, I'll take that hole and I'll expand it to be as big as 150 feet tall. And that is what we're saying here: that if a person, although you may not be able to be be a tzaddik, but if you're going to take the first step and try your best then we've said that self-impulsion, by us taking the first step, induces heavenly inspiration. Any questions? So the first way we can not only emulate a tzaddik, but become a tzaddik is by having it become second nature what we're doing, and that's going to go ahead, and hopefully God is now going to give us a blessing to 
be able to become as close as possible to a tzaddik. That's the first step. Now we're going to learn something else called pregnancy within a soul. What does it mean to be pregnant within a soul? I'd like to start by sharing two stories. The Arizal, the Arizal, he was once in the company of the Medrash Shmuel, the Holy Arizal. And you don't stand up for someone that's not as great as you. Everyone, Halacha says, someone of lower stature should rise for the rabbi he's in front of. And yet the Arizal stood up in the presence of the Medrash Shmuel. Why? And he explains. He says, when I look in the Medrash Shmuel, I see that within his soul is the soul of Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair, a great Talmudic scholar. So I recognize that the Medrash Shmuel has right now within him a great soul and I need to stand up. Within our souls, we can have another great soul with us. Only a few years ago I heard about a story in Toronto where there was a woman who unfortunately was struggling and at the time the story went that there was another soul that was within her and driving her crazy. And the rabbi at the time was able to, um, through different methods, remove that second soul. There is a method for us to bring inside of us a second soul. This is very, it's not only a Kabbalistic thing, this is actually something that is important for our prayers. We all pray every year and say something that if we don't believe in this idea of having the ability to bring within ourselves a second soul, the prayer makes no sense. Where, this, where is this prayer? It's in the Siddur. If you have a blue Siddur, it's on page 392. Let me share it for a second. I think it's fascinating. I'll just share a few Siddurim. If you want to pass them around on page 392. And the prayer we're discussing is for the month of Nisan. The first, in the month of Nisan, the tabernacle, the Mishkan, was dedicated. And every day of the first 12, the first 12 days of the dedication, a different tribe brought a sacrifice. Okay. Well, it starts on page 391, and it's repetitive basically until page, and through page 397. Every day of the first 12 days of the month of Nisan, we say the Nasi, it's called. We talk about which tribe brought which sacrifices on which day. On the first day we learn the sacrifice was brought by the tribe of Yehuda. On the second day we learn it was brought by the tribe of Yisachar, etc., etc. Okay, so far so good. But here comes the problem. Every day we say a prayer. And I'm going to read to you the prayer because it doesn't make sense, seemingly. Here we go. I'm going to read the one on page 392 for the first day. May it be your will, Lord our God and God of my fathers, that in your great kindness you will shine upon the holy souls that renew them themselves as birds and sing and praise and pray on behalf of the holy people Israel. Master of the world, gather and take in those sacred birds, the souls, to the holy place of which it is said, No eye has seen it except you, O God. Period. May it be your will, Lord my God and God of my fathers, that if I, your servant, am of the tribe of Judah, 
the Torah section of whose prints I've recited today, then may there shine upon me all the holy sparks and all the holy lights which are contained in the holiness of this tribe to understand and comprehend in your Torah and in the fear of you. To do your will all the days of my life, I and my children and my children's children from now and forever. Amen. Okay. So I'm asking God that if I am from the tribe of Yehuda, shine upon me all the blessings of the tribe of Yehuda. I don't understand. None of us know which tribe we're from. I, am, I, am, I have the ability to narrow it down for many, many people. How? Number one is, if you're a Kohen or a Levi, I know that you're from the tribe of Levi. Second of all, we know about the ten lost tribes. Many of the tribes were lost. And okay, there's many opinions. Maybe they came back. But basically today, all of us are from between three or four tribes. So what, what's this whole thing? Every day, we're saying, maybe I'm from the tribe of Yehuda, maybe the tribe of Yisachar. Does a Kohen or Levi, Levi say this? Yes. He does? How could he say it? He knows he's not from the tribe of Yehuda. But, but, they, but he does say it. So let me share with you a story. Garrison, you're, you're right. You're, of course you're right. But nonetheless, you're taking away my, my story. No. Okay. Okay, just a minute. Before you, before you get into your story, um, uh, look what has happened on 397, the 13th of Nisan. Yes, yes, yes. That's a sum. That's yeah. our gate. That's ours. The 13th of Nisan actually has no prayer. But, it, nonetheless, this is the dedication offering that is ours and we go through the 13th gate. So provision was made for us. <laughs> Fair observation. Fair observation. Thank you. And, and that was a deep concept. I, I, I agree, we but I don't want to go there. Excluded. <laughs> okay. But I'd like to share with you the Hayom Yom from the first day of Nisan. Shares the Hayom Yom. My father, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak of Lubavitch, is sharing that his father, the fifth Rebbe, instructed his brother-in-law, Rabbi Moshe Horenstein, who was a Kohen, to say Yehi Ratzon after the Nasi. So even a Kohen says this. Why? And he explained, noting that even a Kohen or Levi must say it, for it is related to Ebor. It's related to pregnancy. Ah! So this idea of a second soul being able to come inside of you is something that is not only Kabbalistic, it is very practical. It is something that is applicable to our prayers. Even a Kohen says he may be from the tribe of Yehuda because he may have within his soul also a soul from the tribe of Yehuda. Clear so far? Let's now look in the glossary and see what does this pregnancy mean. Okay, but we're back to the same exact page. A127. Ebor pregnancy. Right on top of the one we just saw. Pregnancy. The Kabbalistic doctrine whereby the soul of a person may attach itself to the soul of another person. Clear. Boom. The soul of one person can attach itself to the soul of another person. According to Ibshneir Zalman of Liadi, according to Ibshneir Zalman, when a person makes a consistent effort to transcend his, old, his own spiritual limitations, he may, by divine, by divine grace, merit that the spirit of a tzaddik should attach itself to and illuminate his own soul. <coughs> this is precisely what we're going to learn right now. Chapter 14. So, 
Not only can, as we mentioned before, you aspire to be a tzaddik and become close to a tzaddik, but we're going to learn now that yes, the Bainani has the ability to become a tzaddik. That joke I told you of the Kohen, according to this, is actually not true. You can become a Kohen. You can't become a halachic Kohen. You can't become a Kohen that was called to the Torah. But you can, yes, you, you have the ability, the Bainani, although his soul can never become a tzaddik, he has the ability to draw within himself the soul of a tzaddik. This is a very, very... It's deep and it's perhaps hard to grasp. But at the same time, it's a, it's a very special idea. Let's see it inside of Tanya. Back in the Tanya, page 64. With all that, we are towards the middle of the top paragraph, page 64, left column. With all that, after a person has given it his best shot to become a tzaddik, perhaps a spirit from above will descend upon him and he will merit something of the spirit ruach that is rooted in some tzaddik that will attach itself to him. So, God should grant us that with, if we're not a tzaddik, then we have the ability for the soul of a tzaddik to attach itself to us so that he may serve God with true joy as it is written rejoice in the Lord your righteous tzaddikim have the ability to have the ultimate joy and hopefully we have the ability to have the soul of a tzaddik enter us and then concludes the chapter 14 then will in truth be fulfilled in him the avowed oath be righteous if the benini is able to draw down the soul of a tzaddik, then that is the ultimate fruition of the oath, be a tzaddik. So let's summarize and put it all together. So we started off sharing how we have to try our best to fulfill the oath, be a tzaddik. What's trying our best? We have to recognize that every desire is, is a fleeting moment and at the end it's going to be nothing. We have to, we, that's for the negative. For the positive, just think how great Hashem is. How Hashem is, has divine providence on every single item in this world. And hopefully our, this will become second nature. And then God will grant us an energy from above to become close to a tzaddik. And actually, hopefully, God will grant us energy from above and we will have within ourselves enter the soul of a tzaddik. So can you become a tzaddik? Perhaps I'm changing from last week and I will say yes. The Benini can become a tzaddik. Well, why do I think this is so amazing? Because it shows us that when we say shoot for the stars, you really can reach the stars. You really can reach above your potential. You can break the limitations that has been set for you. We're, in other words, we're saying every one of us has been created with, if, we, if we're a Bainani, we've been, cre we've been created with a limitation. Bainani and nothing else. And yet we're learning now that you have the ability to break that limitation. You have the ability to go beyond your perception and the perception that was generally set for you. So what about the saying that goes, um, reach for, it's actually reach for the moon, that way you land in the stars. How does that relate that's an interesting question. Reach for the moon. Reach for the moon, that way you land in the stars. That's the first. 
That's cheap. That's the first answer we gave. What was that? I said that's cheap. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But that's actually the first answer we gave today. Before. Meaning, reach for the moon, try to, re to be a tzaddik, and then you'll land in the stars. You'll become close to a tzaddik. That was the first answer. I guess I wasn't here for that answer. No, no. Today, today we discussed how there's two ways you could emulate a tzaddik. The, the second way we discussed is the tzaddik's energy could come within you, but the first way was it will become second nature. Right, by reaching for the stars. So by reaching for the moon, you'll end up in the stars. That's what I'm saying. Correct. And that would be the first... He actually mentioned that before he got here. You just didn't oh, perhaps, perhaps you missed it. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps, yeah. So that would actually be the first okay. answer. I, that's great. So we have reach for the moon, perhaps you'll, you'll reach the stars, will be the first answer. And the second answer is that uh, you actually could reach the moon. The you, you actually could reach the stars. Maybe, okay. Maybe you really want the moon. <laughs> Thank you. Any questions? So... In the pregnancy metaphor of the second soul is yes. the unborn child. The second soul is the unborn child. Oh, you're asking why is it called pregnancy? Well, I'm just I'm trying to explain the metaphor. I Let me read to you a note here that will explain to you why it's called pregnancy. Ebor is truly gestation. And this really refers to the undifferentiated state prior to the appearance of organs. The concept of Ebor indicates an initial state of total merger. That means there's, there's, no yet, there's no form yet. And in this context, all the souls are united. The Kohen, then, is not absolutely unrelated to the other tribes of Israel. So actually, when we use the word pregnancy, we're actually specifically talking about the time of pregnancy prior to the formation of the limbs. And we're saying that at that time, things could still change. Actually, the, the Talmud shares with us that you could pray for a boy or girl. If, if someone is pregnant, they could pray just for the beginning while. Because after that, the child's already... The, the, so the same thing, we're, when we're talking about the idea of pregnancy and a tzaddik coming within you, we're talking about the idea how all souls really are one. And if we go back to that source, we have the ability to draw down within us the soul of a tzaddik. Ibor is therefore analogous to exile, in which one has intelligence and eyes, but does not see or sense divinity, and birth is analogous to redemption. Thank you. Any other questions? Thank you, everyone. Have a wonderful, wonderful night.